Music just moves you in different ways, doesn't it? It's powerful how music can impact us, even obviously today in worship, but also you go to the gym and you put in Eye of the Tiger. You're going to bench press 400 pounds, I guarantee you, right? I mean, you got something about music. You put music in and cleaning the house gets fun. I mean, there's just something about the emotions that come with that. You put on a long drive and country roads, here we come. And you just kind of, you get into those moods. There's something about the, the emotions, the motive behind music and how it just gets into our soul and just kind of begins to move us. I know some of you even have your own private worship playlist and you just kind of like, when you need, you sense that you're far from God or you need to pull closer to Him, you've got some songs that you're like, I just need to hear this and there's something about it. It takes you back to an experience or, or whatever it is and it just kind of moves you closer. You got romantic music. You got dinner and you got to have that kind of stuff or you just, you got that music that just kind of picks you up. Music moves us in unique ways and it's interesting how one person can listen to a song and they're like, eh, and then someone else can listen to that song and they're like, man, this is the greatest thing. And, and there's something about not just the rhythm of it, but the words and how they speak deep to our soul. And over the last few weeks, we've been listening to some of the songs that God has written through David and other artists like him and thinking about this idea of worship and what does it mean for us to worship at the depths of our heart and our mind and our soul and what does it look like for us to, in those moments when we're angry with God, to just lament and to shake our fists at him and say, God, why are you, have you allowed me to be in the place where I am, this feeling of distance and in the desert and this dry place. Well, this morning I want us to think about this idea of playlist and the idea of confession. That there are moments in our life where we're at a distance from God and it has everything to do most of the time with us. That our world has crashed and we're the reason that it has crashed. That we may start out and lament and say, God, why have you left me? And God saying, I'm not the one that has left. That you have crashed your own your own life. So this morning, I want us to think about what would it look like for us? What does it look like for us to confess and to recognize that we are the ones that have wrecked? How can we push restart and begin again? So to do that, we're going to be looking at a psalm that many of you, if you've been in and around church for a while, know, and it's Psalm 51. Nick quoted from it a little bit earlier, but this is a psalm of David. And this is a psalm of confession by David in response to pretty serious stuff in his life. And because of this psalm and because of the response out of this song, we're called David a man after God's own heart, even though he's committed adultery, even though he has murdered, even though he has done some pretty serious things. Because of what God sees in David's heart through Psalm 51, God can proclaim about him that he is a man after his own heart. And isn't that what all of us want? We want God to be able to look at us and say we are men and women that are pursuing God's heart. That we're not perfect, we don't have it all together all the time, but there are moments where God sees us and he sees this pursuit of him and he can say that is my child and I love them and their pursuit of me. They have a heart after me. If you know anything about the story of David, David became the king. And whenever he became the king, he actually became the strongest warrior that Israel had ever known. He was 
doing all kinds of stuff. He had a strong army. He himself was a strong warrior. And so other warriors gathered around him. And in that, he had this strong army. He began to conquer all these lands. God began to give him lands around him, and wealth came. And so through that, after several years of winning many wars and many battles, he began to think really highly of himself. None of us would do that if things begin to get going good in life. We don't think that God's given us just We think that we've done it. And so David kind of gets into that spot. Everybody knows that he's king. He's, he's, he's settled in as king. He's won a lot of wars. Money's coming in and all that. And so he takes the time, and it's a season of war, as the Scripture tells us in Second Samuel, that it's a season where kings and warriors go out. And so in the Middle East, there's some seasons where you don't want to do war. There's seasons where you do want to do war. And that's springtime. And so springtime has come, and David has sent his warriors out to do battle. They have some more work to do. And so they're out doing battle, and the king, a good king, good leader, leads from the front with his warriors. And David had consistently been that guy. He had been there. He had not just done strategy, but he had been out in front leading the battle and leading his men into battle and fighting the wars with them. But somewhere along the way, this season came along, and David thought, hey, I've reached a certain spot where I don't have to lead from the front anymore. I can stand in the house and in the palace and give direction from there. So that's the beginning of David's fall as he begins to place himself, and he thinks of himself in a certain way, in a higher way than what he should. And so because of that, he's in the palace while his men are off at war. And he's up one morning, he's up, he's had his coffee, he's had his donuts, he's had his quiet time, and he's walking around, and he's on top of the palace, and he's looking down, and he sees something that catches his eye. Her name is Bathsheba. And he sees her, and he says, God did a good job with her. She's pretty. And then that spirit that had kind of raised up in him that he deserved to stay at the palace while his men were fighting kind of raised up and said, David, you're king. She's yours. It doesn't matter that she's married to Uriah, one of your leader, lead warriors. She's, she's one of yours, and she's pretty. Why don't you invite her over? So David did. David invited her over, and they had dinner, and all those kind of things on the Harmock Channel happened. Well, then the next thing you know, There's a child coming. Now David realizes he's caught. He can't cover that up very easily. So David knew who Bathsheba's husband was, and he was out on the battlefield. And so David sends a telegram out to the battlefield, and Uriah comes back wanting to know what's happening because something urgent, some urgent business back at the palace. And so he comes back at the king's behest and he gets to the palace and David says, hey, I'm giving you a three-day pass. Go hang out with your wife. David knows what he's doing. But Uriah is a man of integrity. And he says, I can't leave my men on the battlefield to spend three days with my wife when my men are out fighting. I have to lead from the front. I can't be inconvenienced by this time of life. I need to be out doing what I'm called to do. So David, realizing he's not going to be able to convince and trick Uriah into a three-day pass with Bathsheba and to cover up for his sin, he sends Uriah out and literally sends him to murder him. He puts him out in front 
And he sends orders that Uriah and his men should be put out in front and then everyone else, as soon as the battle starts, should retreat and leave Uriah by himself on the battlefield to die. So the news comes back that Uriah is dead and David does what only the good person would do. He realizes that Bathsheba is single and she's now with child and so he brings her in to make himself look good. We would never do that. David brings Bathsheba in and has a child with her, obviously, and this child ends up dying. And so David is a season of mourning, and then all of a sudden this prophet by the name of Nathan comes to David and says, David, i got something to talk to you about. And David realizes in this moment, in this discussion with Nathan, that Nathan is talking to him, and his heart in that moment breaks. He realizes of the magnitude of his sin, that one, he's committed adultery, one, he's committed murder, and, and everything that had happened along the way, and he sees the slippery slope from that one moment, that one moment that he got up in the morning and decided that he wasn't going to go out with his men and fight the wars and the seasons of wars, and he stood at home, and because of that small, seemingly insignificant decision, it led him all the way over to here where the prophet Nathan is saying, you have done wrong. For so many of us, it may not seem like the magnitude of our story is like David's, but how many times has one seemingly insignificant decision led us to overhear? And feeling like God is so far away and Our life is a mess and we've made decision after decision to cover up this one seemingly insignificant white lie and we end up here. Here's David and David's response in Psalm 51. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. Nathan has spoken to him and and David's heart is wrenched and broken. And so here's the song, the playlist that David wrote. Have mercy on me, O God. Because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me from my guilt, purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You've proved right in what you say. And your judgment is against, me, against me is just, for I was born a sinner. Yes, From the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and make me willing to obey you. One of the things I want you to get in this is that our role that David shows us, our role in this story of confession is to repent, is to confess. And that that is our role is to recognize that we're in the wrong and to confess that and that God's role in that is the restoration. 
That in our recognition comes repentance and God's role is he receives us and restores us back. And the result of that is the transformation of our heart. The first thing that I want you to get from this passage is we have to own our mess. We have to own our own mess. We make messes of our lives and the only person that can clean up that mess is ourselves. You know, you're as a parent or as a grandparent, you make a mess and uh, you don't ask the kids to clean it up in the kitchen, do you? You make the mess, you clean it up. Well, you don't make the mess in your kid's room. Do you, do you go clean up the mess in your kid's room? Y'all are asleep. Or actually, you're realizing you do clean up your kid's mess. Listen, you need to own your own mess. Your kids need to own their own mess. You didn't make the mess. If you didn't make the mess at someone else's, let them clean it up. Here in this passage, there's three words that David uses for his mess. He uses transgression, iniquity, and sin. And all three of those words basically mean the same thing, but what he's trying to do is he's trying to clearly identify for himself and for others this condition of his alienation. That it's a transgression, that it's an iniquity, that's a sin, that this moves him away further and further away from God. And David in this moment says, I own my own mess, when he could have easily blamed others. One of the things that we have a tendency to do is we become the victim of our situation and our circumstances, even when we're the ones that created it. And David here shows us, God shows us that we are to own our own mess and to not blame other people for the situations that we've put ourselves in. Then when we do that, we're deflecting our own responsibility and owning our own sin and our own mess and our own iniquity. And we, that's whenever we just say, yeah, I'm sorry, or we have cheap apologies. Or here's something that I've learned in marriage. This is free advice. You cannot say, I'm sorry for how you feel. I've tried. And it doesn't work. And so many times we do that with God. God, I'm sorry for how you feel for the situation that I'm in. And God's like, I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I want you to feel true remorse, repentance, with a change of heart and change of mind that comes from that. Because every time we sin, you throw a little rock and there's a ripple effect and it impacts you. It impacts your victim. It impacts your relationship with God. There's a ripple effect of every time we sin. And we have to own our mess. So when you tell your kids, go clean your room, don't rescue them. Let them do it. It may take them five hours. They may even find some toys that they've lost, and they play with them for a little bit. That's awesome. The same is true for us is that whenever God says, go clean your room, and he lets us do some of the cleaning and, and lets us do some of that work, we're reminded of God's faithfulness and God's goodness, and we find some of the things that God has done for us in the past, and we're reminded of why we love him to begin with. Own your own mess. The second thing that I want you to get is this, is that you, in that owning of your own mess, you have to confess it. You have to believe that it's serious enough to not only say I'm sorry, but to own it and to give it over. 
the scripture in verse 7, it tells us that we're to take a hyssop branch and to use it to clean us. That hyssop branch was a part of the um, Passover. And so at the Passover, whenever the Passover lamb was offered up, Israelites would put blood over their door and a reminder of their freedom from Egypt. And so in that moment, whenever they got freedom from Egypt, all of the young males and all of Egypt died except for the Israelites because they, with the hyssop branch, put the blood of a lamb sacrifice, an unblemished lamb, sacrifice around the doorposts. And as the death angel passed over, all of those that had that lived and those that didn't passed away. And so here David, the psalmist, is reminding his people that God's forgiveness comes through us and that's part of our activity. We have to repent. And as a part of that, God has a responsibility to, to judge us and to do his just thing, but in that moment of true repentance, he passes over and gives us new life. Confess your mass. There's nothing about a sh- nothing better than a shower after a long, hard day, right? You kind of get in there and you clean and you put on new clothes. And one of the things that I learned, I took a chaplaincy class back in way back when in seminary, and one of the things that part of this chaplaincy class was a a, um, a lady who worked with the FAA. And so one of the things that they learn as chaplains and working with all these major organizations is that as you deal with life, and in particular with trauma, that we have a tendency to come home from those different things from the day, and we keep our clothes on. So you come home from teaching, you come home from working or whatever, and that we keep our clothes on. And there's something that happens in our brains when we keep our clothes on. We are still in work mode. And so one of the things that they've learned as chaplains and as psychologists and sociologists is the best thing that we can do to reestablish and separate a difference between work and home is to come home, take a shower, and change clothes. Because something about that psychologically, socially for us, it just changes us. And so you get the old duds on and get the new duds on, get your jammies on, whatever you need to do. And you confess your mess, you own it. But then you come home and you forgive and get rid of it. And you have a new start so that you don't vomit on your spouse or whatever you need to do through the day. That you can literally in that moment just shower it off and get rid of it and move on. The last thing that I want you to see is cleanliness is next to godliness. And you've heard that before. And it doesn't mean that we can clean up, but it does this idea of that if we own it and we confess it, then God will transform us. And reposition us. There's this word called metamalesthi. It's an exciting word. Metamalesthi. And it means remorse. And it's this idea that all throughout Scripture that there's a lot of times that we have remorse, but it's not full repentance. In other words, we feel sorry for things, but the sorry is not deep enough to change our mind or to change our course. So Paul continually says, Metalemesthi is not good enough. You need metanoia to literally to repent, to change your mind, to change your course, because your will then changes. Your mind changes. Your appetite changes. Your eyesight changes with metanoia. It's this idea of true repentance. For many of us, we have a lot of remorse, but we struggle with repentance. The admitting of, I am moving in the wrong direction. I'm moving here 
and I realize that I'm sorry, but we continue on. Or maybe we stop, but true repentance is change of mind and heart and will and appetite and eyesight, and it makes us move in a completely different direction. To own our mess, to confess it, so that cleanliness can come of our heart and soul. Right behavior comes from a clean heart and a clean spirit. One of the things that we do sometimes in religion and the religion world is we tell people, don't do this or don't do that. And we never really give them reasons why other than we say, hey, if you're a Christian or if you're a mature Christian, then you don't do certain things anymore or whatever. When in reality, that stuff happens because of heart transformation. That your appetite changes, your eyesight changes, and so we're putting things on people that they're not maybe even truly ready to receive, and we're asking things of them that they're not ready to make decisions to make. Whenever we're trying to be God in those moments, and to allow people to understand that right behavior comes from a clean heart and a clean spirit, and then that clean heart and that clean spirit as we begin to walk in that, as our appetites change, as our eyesight changes, there's things that maybe in the past that we thought, you know what, those aren't necessarily bad or good, but I don't need those anymore because they don't give me worth, they don't give me value, they don't bring significance to me. Right behavior comes from a clean heart and a clean spirit. And our verse, whenever Paul or uh, whenever David says, give me a clean heart, a new heart, it's that word kainos, and it's, you see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 7 as well. It says this, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a kainos, a new person. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. It's, idea, it's this idea that there's a metal, and the metal has been melted down, and there's a new substance that has been Put in it, and whenever it was raised up as a new person in Christ, that literally the substance in it is, is different. That you may look the same on the outside to everyone else, but there's something new inside of you that has transformed you, and it has made taking you from ignoble purpose to noble purpose, from unholy purposes to holy purposes. And that you know from that new metal, that new substance, the Holy Spirit within inside of you, that there's a transformation happening inside. And that for us, day after day after day, it's this owning our mess, confessing it. And in that moment of confessing and repenting that we're moving away from our direction and our purpose and our agenda and our appetites to his agenda, his purpose, his appetites. And that's when people begin to see you and say, there's something different about you. And what they're seeing is, is that you're moving in a different direction. You're walking with a different confidence. Your words are different. The way that you see people are different. The things that you do and say and why you do them. You wear shirts that say love does, and you're trying to live that out and understand what it means. I had the coolest experience this week. I'm at the gym working out. And yes, I work out to eat out. And man, I just, just talking, just chatting. And for some reason, there was this lull in customers at the gym at this moment. So it's just me and this one person. 
And they're talking about a situation. They just lost a family member. And um, they were at the funeral. And they were talking about how they were received by the family. That their extended family are Christians. But they weren't received. These, these people are not Christians. And they were, they were received not in a good way. We just began to talk about that. I was like, yeah, you know. Like sometimes there's, I was like, I'll be honest. There's times that people say that they're Christians, but they're, we're really not. Or that we just, sometimes we don't act like Christians or whatever. And, or maybe we've been in church too long and we just forget. And, and I'm like, I mean, you know, and I just made that statement of like, you know what I mean, what it means to be a Christian. Because we're in Texas, we're in the Bible Belt, we're in LaGrange. Deadpan. I have no idea. I've heard the word, but I have no idea what it means. And I'm like, holy smokes. And I presented the gospel. And just seeing and, and explaining what it means to be new in Christ. And to, and to strip away all the different things that we sometimes get caught up in is you don't do this or you don't do that or you got to do this and you got to have this and just literally going, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that I admit I'm a mess and that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient to cover over my mess. And that the longer that I live in that and understand that, it makes me, as we say around here, there are no perfect people allowed. And that for some reason we get we do church long enough, we think that we're reaching a certain level, and we forget that we are a mess, and that we are full of hypocrites because we'll go to school, we'll go to work, we'll go to different places, and we have different masks that we wear. And because we want to pretend that we've cleaned up and got it together to get close to God, while the whole time we're like, I wish that I could be back at that place where I first experienced Jesus. It's because we just, instead of cleaning up the mess, we just build a new room. Move to a new church. Get new friends. Do different things to just shift and, and accommodate our sin. This morning, own your mess, confess the mess, and let God draw close to you. I think one of the best images of this is that the, the story of the prodigal son and that the father is on the front porch and his eyes are always on the horizon looking for us to come home. And where's the son at? He's in the pigsty, eating the pig's leftovers, rolling around and rooting in that mess. And finally at that point when he can't, when he realizes where he's at in his own mess, he says, surely being a servant in my father's house is better than this. Today we say it like this, they got to hit bottom. I don't know what their bottom is, but they got to hit bottom. Confess your mess. All of us have a tendency to wallow with the pigs because we're afraid of what the Father's expectations and where He's at. And He's on the porch waiting. The porch light is on. He's waiting. 
for you to come home. Own it, confess it, and receive what the Father has for you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you see our mess and it's not too much. It's not too bad. It's not too dirty. It's not too filthy. But Father, that we have to own it so that you can do your work and clean it up. Father, thank you for your son Jesus and that his death on the cross is sufficient, more than sufficient to cover up my mess. Father, would you work in us this morning? Would you work in our hearts and our minds? Would you allow us in this room to not just be remorseful but to repent? In this Thanksgiving season, may we give thanks that we can repent, that we can have a change of mind and heart and direction and sight and appetite. Father, we love you. And we want to know you intimately. May we do that. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.